So we had game two yesterday, last night, game two for the Bucks Celtics, game two for the Warriors Grizzlies. I will talk about them in a little bit, but I wanted to talk about <clears throat> Doc Rivers and the Philadelphia Sixers to start because if you remember, this was before game one happened where I said that I just don't see any way that the Sixers should get the job done. There's no way I can see the Sixers advancing past Miami with Joel Embiid out for the series. I just couldn't see it. There would have to be a multitude of things that would have to happen. James Harden would have to turn back time and become the James Harden of Houston. And Tobias Harris would have to show that he can be the primary, if not a very good Robin to James Harden's Batman. He would have to be that guy. He would have to be able to take on especially the scoring load while Embiid's out. I said that those are two things that I just don't see happening. I don't think Tobias is that consistent, prolific scorer, though he's very good. He's a very good scorer. I just can't see him doing it for four games out of a series while James Harden also becomes the James Harden of old. Now, I said that, but I want to talk about Doc Rivers. Before, maybe a few episodes ago, I talked about how the conversation of Doc Rivers being overrated has always been one that has stuck out. It's always been a conversation that has consistently plagued him throughout his coaching career. When he was in Boston, everybody thought multiple championships were coming for Doc. Everybody thought that when you have Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett come to join Paul Pierce, this is going to equal multiple championships. Then you find out Rajon Rondo's better than what everybody thought. He was the point guard. I mean, you you almost can't create a better point guard that can dictate where the ball goes, get everybody the looks that they want to get in the spots that they want to get it to. It was a great team. You, The depth and, and um, the veterans that are coming off the bench between Sam Cassell, you know, they had James Posey, they had all types of guys coming off. Even after those guys had retired, you still had guys like Big Baby Davis and all these other guys come in. Anyway, that always played Doc, I think. The fact that he only won one ring with that squad always plagued him. He goes to the Clippers. We know what happens in L.A. Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, all those guys. Uh, Jamal Crawford. It was always that conversation of this should be the year. This is the year that the Clippers finally break through that ceiling, get to the NBA Finals, and they couldn't. They can never get past the Spurs. They can never get past that OKC team. They were never able to get past the Mavericks team. And it just always plagued them to see that Doc Rivers was never a coach that exceeded expectations. Now, I'm not going to be too harsh on him because I don't think he's ever failed expectations in a sense, right? When you saw that Boston team, we thought this is going to be a championship team, and they won one. It's not easy to win a title. So I don't want to take that away from him and not say he's a good coach. But this constant reminder from the media and everybody in the NBA to just always talk about the Hall of Fame level coach that Doc Rivers, I think sometimes, is that's what causes fans and people that are watching this outside to go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is he top tier? Is he that type of coach? Should he be mentioned with the Greg Popoviches and the, and the, uh, I mean, whoever, right? Even other coaches that aren't, you know, Phil Jackson obviously is one and Pat Riley you can talk about, but even other coaches that just seem to exceed the expectations of whatever team they had between Rick Carlisle or any of these guys like where does Doc Rivers rank amongst these great Hall of Fame level head coaches who sometimes you saw them do a lot with a little sometimes they exceeded the expectations where hey this team's really good but I don't see them winning a championship and they win one Doc has never done that in his career so going to Philly <clears throat> I talked about this and I said, with a healthy Joel Embiid, with James Harden now on the team, 
Tobias Harris, the way Tyrese Maxey's playing, the fact that they have a true lockdown defender in Tybal, all of those things going right for Philly, this is that year. This is the time where Doc Rivers exceeds expectations. And though maybe they don't win a title, getting to the NBA Finals would answer so many questions for Doc Rivers. It would shut up a lot of people like myself who constantly have to ask those questions of where do we rank him and maybe we don't put him that high in terms of those Hall of Fame coaches. And that's how I felt going into the series. So that's how I felt going into the playoffs. So when I see Joel Embiid get hurt and be out for this round, I almost feel like Doc Rivers got lucky in a way. Obviously, he it's not like he would want to be in a series without Joel Embiid. Doc Rivers wants everything to work out for him. But I feel like it was, in a sense, to his benefit. Because nobody now sees Philly beating Miami. If you do, hey, credit to you. I don't know where you see it, but without Joel Embiid for the series, I just cannot see it. And I don't think any. I don't think most people do. Most people believe that Miami's going to be able to win this series without Embiid. But what it does is it lowers the expectations. Because if Embiid is there and healthy and they have their full squad, this is a winnable series for them. Yes, I get it. Miami Heat's the number one team in the East, but this would be a winnable series, especially with Kyle Lowry out and Jimmy Butler's coming back from an injury. This would be a situation where everyone would say, let's see what you got, Doc. We've seen it time and time again where you can't get over that hump. You cannot exceed somebody's expectations of your team. Let's see if you can do it now against Miami. Can you some way, somehow figure this out? And because no one would be, they wouldn't be a heavy, it's not like Miami would be heavy favorites in the series with a healthy draw and beat. We would think that that would be a really good series and a winnable one for the Sixers. So you would put that expectation on him where now is the time, dude. Now is the time. Shut up the critics. Make it happen. Get get past this round. Where now that Embiid's out, it's like, kind of caught a break. You kind of caught this lucky break where you don't have those expectations now. They're so much lower to where now if you just push the series to six, if you lose in six, especially if you push the series to seven, then that is as good as it can get. If you somehow, some way beat the Heat without Joel Embiid, then it's the critics will stop talking. And wow, look what Doc Rivers was able to do even without Joel Embiid to be able to beat Miami get past them, get to the Eastern Conference Finals, like that would, that would, I think, silence a lot of the haters and a lot of the critics. But I don't see that happening. But it, at least it does, it lowers the expectation for them where even if they lose, as long as they don't get like swept or something, it's not that devastating to his legacy. It doesn't put a stain on his career in any, in any way because he has to play without his star player. It's almost like he's getting a pass for this season to say, hey, I didn't have him beat. If I did, who knows what could have happened, which has happened to Doc Rivers a few times in his career. So it's unfortunate for him, but that game one, I think, was more proven what I was saying. The Sixers gave him everything they, they can handle. And the other thing about Doc is, like, the thing that is tough with Doc Rivers is he's always been somebody that you go, well, you don't look at him as an X's and O's guy. He's not an X's and O's. He's not some offensive guru. His teams always play really hard defense, and that's where his kind of staple is around the defensive side of things. Where even with Boston, with like KG and Pierce and Allen, you would think that the offense and the points that they would score, and even then they would get pretty stagnant on offense sometimes, but it was the commitment to defense, right? That's where he kind of is staple, but it's more so his leadership. You know, Doc is just a guy, a man's man. He's a leader of men. Like that's where people paint Doc Rivers for the people that think Doc Rivers is this great Hall of Fame coach, which I'm not saying he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, 
right? If you get X amount of wins and X amount of playoff bursts and you have a ring, like I'm not saying Doc shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I'm just saying where I rank him in terms of coaches is probably lower than a lot of other people's. And the reason for it is because if that's your MO, right? If that's your strength is your leadership qualities, not necessarily the X's and O's. You're not an offensive guru. You're it's more so your leadership qualities and the way you get guys to buy into your system and what you want to do and the way you guys want to play ball. If that's what it is, okay. But then you have the issues with Rondo in Boston and it causes issues in the locker room and and you and Rondo can't see eye to eye and that causes more problems. And it's like, okay, well maybe that's just Rondo. Maybe Rondo is just that type of dude. And you know, you can't really, what can you do with Rajon Rondo in that situation? All right. Okay. And you go to LA. Then all of a sudden we hear that Blake Griffin and Chris Paul are getting along and they're having issues and there's locker room issues there. And JJ Reddick talks about issues that you guys had in the locker room and, you know, started losing a lot of the faith and you weren't able to really mend relationships and, and make them work together. You know, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Then you go to Philly and it doesn't work out with a superstar there and Ben Simmons. When Doc Rivers took over Philly, we went Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. This is a perfect case scenario for Doc. He gets another team that he could turn into the super team and ha- super team and have another chance. And you throw Ben Simmons under the bus, and it doesn't work out with Ben Simmons. How everyone can say what they want about Ben Simmons, and yeah, his criticism is fair. But again, this is some guy who just it did not work out. You could not see eye to eye with him. You threw him under the bus. You got rid. You threw him under the bus, and you got rid of him. So if you're this great leader, when are you going to take somebody that is kind of hard to corral, difficult to keep into this team structure, and make it work with them? When is that going to happen if you're this great leader and that's where your strength lies as a head coach? Again, not to bash on him, not to say he's not a Hall of Fame coach. He's Hall of Fame worthy. Do I consider him one of the best coaches? No. In my opinion, Popovich is clearly better than him. Not being too biased right back here. The, the Spurs, I'm going to be a little bit biased, but I do think Doc Rivers is head and shoulders better coach than him. I think Eric Spolster is a better coach than him. I think guys like Rick Carlisle that even got fired have proven to be a better coach than him at times. Like, there are guys that I think just do more with less, especially somebody like Eric Spolster, who he's going up against right now in this Heat series. Eric Spolster is a guy who a lot of people thought rode the coattails of LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh into a finals, right, into some championship rings. Cool, that's that's fair. I get it. You you know, who wouldn't, it's like everybody said, who wouldn't win a championship with those with those guys? Okay, what happens post them? What happens post LeBron James leaving? What happens post Dwayne Wade retiring? Chris Bosh has a rare like freak health condition that they find about he couldn't even finish off his career the way he would want to he's just gone and they somehow made it work and they made it work by drafting guys like Bam Adebayo picking up guys like Duncan Robinson drafting a guy like Tyler Harrell bringing in a guy like Jimmy Butler who Jimmy Butler in Chicago didn't work out Jimmy Butler with the um, Timberwolves didn't work out where they just felt like Jimmy Butler's good but he can't be the guy all of a sudden you get to an NBA finals with that team All of a sudden, you're the number one team in the East with that team. You look like you're going to go to another Eastern Conference Finals with that team. Team that they built. They brought that from ground up. They make Jimmy Butler work when nobody thought Jimmy Butler could work as your best player or your primary scorer. They made it work. They made it work. So Eric Spolster is a guy who has already in his career, yes, it started off with 
Yeah, he rode the coattails. But since then, he has exceeded expectations. And that's where I rate these coaches. How many of them exceed the expectations we have going into a season where we say this team's not good enough to make the playoffs and they get that team to the playoffs and make them competitive? This team's a playoff team, but they're not good enough to get to a championship. They're not good enough to win a ring with that roster. And they do when you are exceeding those expectations they have on you. Doc Rivers, since the time he was with the Celtics, every team he has been with, we have said they could be a championship team. They could get to the finals. We can see this team getting to a championship and winning a championship. They weren't the odds-on favorite, but they've all been very capable of doing so with the roster they had. From that Celtics team that only won one, from the Clippers with, with Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, and those boys, with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and those boys, and now with Joel Embiid and James Harden and them. So I think he lucked out a little bit with Embiid being out for the series. I like the Heat in that series. I think game one uh, told me a lot that I needed to know about that series, where even if Tobias Harris is playing great, even if Harden's having a pretty good game, I just don't think Harden has that ability anymore. I just don't think he can be a 40-point guy, which I don't think he needs 40-plus points a game to win the series, but they're going to have to have a game or two where he goes bananas or somebody goes bananas. And I just don't think Harden has that in him anymore. That explosion, like I talked about, that athleticism is, is kind of leaving him. Uh, and, and that's why I think the Miami Heat are going to finish this series, I would say, five, six. Again, if he pushes it to six or pushes it to seven, then good on you, Doc. That's, you know, that that's pretty good resume for the end of the year, especially considering that you didn't have your star player the guy who a lot of people feel is the most dominant player in the league today, you didn't have him. You're able to push the number one seed to seven games. That'd be, you, you get your kudos, you get your pat on the back and you avoid the conversation of another year where Doc Rivers couldn't get it done. You avoid that, which is good. And then w the other game that we had was the, so we had Grizzlies, uh, Suns and Mavericks. I told you guys, uh, sometimes you're just right. Sometimes you're just right, you get it right, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you sound like a jackass, but I got this series right. I said it. I said the Mavericks, in order to be competitive, Luka has to go out. He has to prove that outside of, outside of uh, Giannis, he might be the second best player. If Giannis is the best player in the NBA, and I said this last episode, I said if Giannis proves in this Celtics series that he is the best player in the NBA, win or lose the series, he can prove to everybody that he is undoubtedly the best player in the NBA, Luka could do the same thing with the Mavericks and prove that he's the second best player in the NBA with the series he can have against against the um, the Phoenix Suns. He could be that good. He can be that unstoppable, but they'll still come up short. And sure enough, he gets 45 points in that game. He goes bananas. He keeps them in it. <coughs> he does what he can do. But it's like I said before, I just don't trust Dallas's defense. I just don't think they have guys that can stop the Suns. DeAndre Ayton is a legitimate problem. Chris Paul, when he's at his best and when he's healthy, I hope that Chris Paul can stay healthy for the remainder of the playoffs. He's a problem. Like, they just don't have guys to guard them. I like Jalen Brunson, but he he's not guarding Chris Paul. They're, they don't have the guys that can switch. Sorry about that. Almost died. They don't have the guys that can switch on and be able to just you know, play that switch defense or they don't trap as hard. Their rotations, all the traps aren't as good as when you look at like Boston or Milwaukee. It's just not there. I just don't think they have the ability to string together enough stops to be able to beat a team like Phoenix. And sure enough, they score over 100 and what, what they score, 110, I think. 
Something like that for Dallas, where Luka gets 45. I said Kleber or Bertans, they're going to have to get some really good outside shooting. Kleber has a really good game, gets like 19. And they just, you know, the Suns put up over 120 points. They just they just cannot get the stops they need to be a championship team, especially a team that is as deep as Phoenix is. But especially against a team that is as deep as Phoenix, I just don't think that they'll be able to get enough stops. Now, can they win a game or two? Yes, especially if Luka balls out like this consistently and that's why I said Luca has a really good opportunity to show people that if Giannis is your 1A I'm 1B I can be that type of player now I don't want to that doesn't mean I'm ruling out guys like Yo Kitcher and beat I'm not talking about like MVP status I'm just talking about bucket getters guys that are unstoppable those dominant forces those skill level like just the best players the guys who are going to continue to <coughs> the guys that are going to continue to reign supreme and be the best players in the league Luca has that ability behind Giannis, and that's what I meant by it. And now here we are. Here we are. You know, game one is over for Dallas and Phoenix. Phoenix wins. I think they'll continue to do so. I would like it if Dallas can push it to a six-game series, but I can see Phoenix winning in five, maybe in six tops. I don't see this series getting pushed to seven. Give me Phoenix in five, to be honest. I think Luca gives them one. If they can give them two, then that would be Luca would need to be that guy where he's like, hey, this dude's the best player in the league. Um, and then we had last night was game two of Boston and Milwaukee. And once again, once again, your boy hit, I said, I am more worried about Memphis than I am than Boston. And the reason being is I think Boston will have a great turnaround. I think Boston still plays the defense needed to be win that series. And I just feel like Brown and Tatum, one of them are going to go off now. One of them has to have a big game. They, for four games, for four wins in this series, one of them has to go off. And then they got to get a little bit of help. I said, who is it going to come from? Payne Pritchard, Grant Williams, Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart was out for this game, which made me a little bit worried. Al Horford, like somebody has to really help out and force this team or make the Bucks pay for the constant focus and traps and things that they're doing, sending Tatum's way, sending Brown's way, where they're really, really aggressive in, in protecting the paint and they're leaving shooters open. Those guys have to hit. Somebody has to have a big game where they're really making them pay for that. And sure enough, Brown on 25 points in the first half goes berserk, pushes a lead to where they just weren't able to get it back. He has an incredible first half. And then Grant Williams, I thought, was the secret sauce to it. Like I said, Brown, it wasn't a surprise to me. I do think four times out of this series, Brown or Tatum are going to have big games. And this was one of them where Brown had it. But they needed that extra guy. They needed somebody to make him pay. And in this case, it was Grant Williams. If he can shoot like that for the remainder of the series, I'm not saying he has to get 20-plus points a game, but if he could just make them pay when they leave him open and they could get a little bit of help from the Horford, from the Payne Pritchard, if Marcus Smart is back, if they can just shoot consistently enough. They don't have to light it up. They don't have to go crazy. If they can just shoot consistently enough to where Milwaukee pays for all the attention they give to the paint against Tatum and Brown, they will win the series, and I'm sticking by it. Uh, the series is tied 1-1 now. It was a must-win game for Boston. It's tied 1-1. They're able to get it done. I still have Boston in six. I'm sticking to it, guys. I still have Boston in six. Uh, the other game, <clears throat> Memphis, Golden State, must-win game for Memphis. They won. Congrats, Jaw ja Morant is... I agree with the notion. I know everyone was upset when Jaw Morant, or all the players were upset when Jaw Morant went and won the... Um, 
the most improved player award because they were like, hey, this guy isn't a improved player. This isn't some six man. This isn't some dude that, you know, we're not really keeping. We all know the dude's a stud. We all think of him as a superstar. <clears throat> LeBron James came out and talked about, like, it's crazy that this guy would win most improved. Like, this dude's a star. We know it. And yeah, like, the every NBA player, especially the good ones, the stars of the league, they all look at John Morant as their peer. This dude is a superstar. He is a stud. Why is he winning most improved? He should be an MVP race. He should be an MVP talks. Most improved player? And I get it. I understand it because John Morant really is that guy. And you saw it in that series where he just willed his way to it. How good he was in crunch time. How good he was laying that game in the fourth quarter. God, I love me some John Morant. I saw a lot of people talking about <clears throat> the nostalgia that he gives them of Derrick Rose in that 2011 season and Derrick Rose with the Bulls. Like, man, I feel it too. John Morant is so freaking good. His way he controls his body, the way he attacks the paint, his finishing ability, his explosiveness, like his commitment on defense. He's not a great defender, but he commits wholeheartedly defensively he can block shots to the point guard position like i love everything about jaw unfortunately this was a must win for them so not getting swept but i still have golden state in six i still have the warriors in six maybe even five i love the resilience and i love the the fight that the Grizzlies showed and i like that they weren't gonna lay over they weren't gonna roll over and die i'm not letting you guys go up 2-0 heading back to your house we ain't letting that happen i love it but now that the series flips back to golden state I just, I feel like Jaw Morant has to be superhuman in order for them to get even just three wins in this series. But to win four, four out of seven games, I feel like Jaw would have to be superhuman. And I just, it's too much. It's too much to ask of him. I think the Warriors still have the better team. <clears throat> I think that they're still going to do enough. I think that coming back home, look for Clay and Jordan Poole to have great games. Uh, Gary Payton, I think, is out for the remainder of the series, maybe. I think he had a fracture in his elbow. I'm not sure. I, uh, don't quote me. I don't know if he's, he is completely out for the series, but I know he had a fracture. I know it came off of a, of the flagrant two penalty. Shout out flagrant two podcast. But the flagrant two penalty from Dylan Brooks on Gary Payton Jr. that injured him. He got kicked out of the game for that flagrant two call. And I like it. A lot of people were like, you know, we didn't like the flagrant two call. They didn't like the flagrant two in game one for Draymond, which reminds me, I don't think I talked about it at length. I mentioned it happening, but I didn't say about how I felt about that ejection for Draymond Green in game one. And I liked it. Well, I don't like it. I don't like when anybody gets gets kicked out of a game. I didn't like that Draymond Green got kicked out. I didn't like that he got a flagrant two. I didn't like the, that Dylan Brooks got a flagrant two and got out. But I understand it. Like, there's certain things that are just unnecessary in a game. And trust me, I'm not one of these, you know, kick everybody out and, oh, they're thugs. We need them out of the game. We can't have that. No, 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 no. You know, if they would have given <clears throat> Draymond a flagrant one, cool, I wouldn't sit here and be wild up and he needs to get ejected for that. I wouldn't be like that. But they gave him a flagrant two for a reason. And the thing I don't like is, like, the uh, commentators, the people that are calling the game, I forget who was on the call, but they talk about the Draymond situation and they talk about it in, I think they're missing the point. They're saying that he got ejected because it was contact to the head. In Draymond's case, it was a combination of the two. It wasn't one or the other. You don't dissect the two things that happened. So if you go back and remember Draymond's foul, he smacked him in the face, right? Comes across. He's trying to recover off of a little bit of a scramble. He doesn't want to give up the easy bucket. So he swipes down, you know, trying to get the ball, but he smacks him right in the face. Okay. 
After he smacks him in the face, it looks like he's still going to get the and one. So Draymond then reaches out after he's already passing him, grabs him by the jersey, and yanks him down to the floor. Both of those things combined is what caused the flagrant two. They kept saying on air, it wasn't the pull of the jersey, it was a smack to the head. No, no, it was both. If you remember when the ref came back and spoke into the mic and said the flagrant two penalty, he said for the unnecessary contact above the shoulders and the jersey pull down. It's both things. They went, well, the hit to the head is going to be a flagrant one. But then after you hit him in the head, you then turn around, grab him by the jersey and pull him down. That's what's going to give you a flagrant two. So that's why and I'm, I agree with it. I think, it. you know, I'm not upset about the flagrant two penalty for Draymond Green. There's some point where you just have to give up the bucket, man. You have to give up the bucket. You cannot be doing what you're doing in that situation. And I think the same rule and the same concept applies to Dylan Brooks where it's like, dude, you gave up the bucket. You guys played bad defense. You guys played terrible transition defense. He's past you. You're not in front of him. You can't make a play on the ball. He's It's a bucket, man. Let him get the two points and come back the other way. For you to try to reach over his head from behind while he's in midair and just club him across the head, yeah, I understand a flagrant too. Again, if they gave him a flagrant one, would I be like, that's crazy, that's bullish, he should be out of the game, they shouldn't be allowing that? No, I wouldn't have been upset about it. But I'm also not upset at the flagrant too. Because at some point you have to realize, like as a player, yo, we gave up these points. We gave him up. It's not like you're preventing it, right? Draymond smacked him in the face. And then pulled him by the jersey. You're not preventing any points. You're still putting him at the line for two free throws. And in your case, by doing that, you're putting him at the line for free throws and the ball so they can get even more points. At some point, you just have to realize we're giving this up. It's like the take foul. I, was it um, Jeff Van Gundy, not Stan Van Gundy. It was his brother Jeff. Jeff Van Gundy, there was a take foul that Kyrie Irving took where he was just blown away, where he was... So upset at it. He was like, I don't understand why superstars are taking take fouls. This is dumb. This makes no sense. It's the same thing. It's the same thing where you're just like, why is that necessary? They the Celtics were about to get on a fast break. Kyrie Irving is a take foul. If you don't want to take foul, it's like you're just fouling him to prevent a fast break layup on the other hand. But it gave Kyrie like his third or fourth foul. And they were in the bonus, so he still shot two free throws anyway. It's like this makes zero sense. Just try to play defense, and if they get the bucket, they get the bucket. You know, it is what it is. We come back and, hey, don't turn the ball over next time. Play better transition defense the next time. So in Draymond's case, it's like, dude, you know, you guys were in a scramble. He made a good move, good pass. <clears throat> cool. You swipe down, trying to get the ball. You miss. You hit him in the face. You don't then pull him. You gave up an and one. That's your fault. Play better defense next time. And in Dylan Brooks' case, you guys play terrible transition defense. You gave up an easy layup. And then you just smack him across the head. It has to be out of frustration. So I understand why the flagrant two, again, if they called a flagrant one and didn't eject either one of those guys for those plays, it, that would have been fine, too. I wouldn't have been up in arms. I wouldn't have been saying that they needed to be ejected. It would have been cool. But I completely understand the flagrant two call. Uh, other than that, we have games two tonight for the Heat, Sixers, and the Suns and uh, <clears throat> and Mavericks. I think those. I wouldn't be surprised if both those home teams go up 2-0. Uh, but anyway, credit to the Grizzlies. Good job getting up to one and one. Make this series interesting. I still think it's gonna be over in five, maybe six, the most for Memphis uh, that the Warriors will win. But this series, I guess you would call it bus wins for the Mavericks and the Heat, right? It's, the odds aren't great whenever a team goes down, uh, goes down two games, the first two games of the series. But I will not be surprised if the Suns and Heat both win 
both of their home games and then switch over. I can see both teams being up 3-1 going into the fifth game, to be honest. Like, I don't see those series getting pushed to seven, and I definitely don't see the Embiid-less Sixers being able to beat the Heat, and I don't see the Mavericks, even with Lucas Heroics, being able to beat the Phoenix Suns. I just think the Suns are too deep. The way they move the ball, the amount of people that they have that can contribute offensively is too much for a team that has struggled all year defensively in the Dallas Mavericks. So I assume that's going to happen. Uh, one thing that I did see that I wanted to mention was the tweet from Magic Johnson. <clears throat> Drives me crazy, right? Drives me absolutely crazy. Magic Johnson had tweeted out saying, if Boston loses this game, this was before game two last night, he said, if Boston loses this game, they're going to get swept by Milwaukee. And it drives me crazy because I'm like, Magic knows basketball. Magic is NBA champion, multiple-time NBA champion, one of the greatest we've ever had. What have you seen from Boston in the past series or even in game one that makes you feel like they're an incapable team of winning? One game, you said if they win game two, they're going to get swept. Even if they lost game two, I still don't see, I still don't see Boston getting swept. Now, <clears throat> I will admit that if Milwaukee won game two, I can see that series getting flipped to my me saying that the Celtics were going to win to me going, yeah, I think Milwaukee's going to win this game because they go up 3-1, man. It's a wrap. It's going to be too hard to beat this team three times in a row, especially when they already have three games on you. That I understand. But that's not what we're talking about. Magic said if they lose game two, they're going to get swept. That means that you already see it in your mind where this team is not good enough. If Magic Johnson says that he thinks the Celtics are going to win the series now, that's nuts. How can you see a team getting swept one day and the very next day you can see them winning a series? Magic Johnson has to believe that the Bucs are going to win this series if he believes that he can see the Bucs sweeping Boston. If you can envision them getting swept, then that means that you probably envision them winning the series. And that's just to me. I don't know what he's seen from the Boston Celtics. Like, okay, they had a bad game one. So what does that mean now? Because if they went out and blew out the Bucs, they blew them out. They won by 20-something points. The Bucs blew them out the first game. They blew them out the second game. Bucks couldn't score. So now what, Magic? Does Magic Johnson now think that the Celtics are going to win 4-1? Like, we can't flip that hard, guys. Don't overreact. It's a seven-game series, which is wild that an NBA champion like Magic Johnson would have had that take to say, like, the Celtics could get swept here. I, I just don't understand what he saw. I don't know what he saw. You know, I'm not going to question his brilliance and his his basketball IQ. Maybe he saw something that he just didn't think the Celtics were going to be able to do much. But <clears throat> the one thing that the Celtics did well defensively the first game, and you can go back and watch, I said this, that half-court defense is still a problem. They still make it so difficult on Milwaukee to score. They make it so tough for Giannis to get to the area that he wants to get to. He can't get to the rim without having to go through bodies. That's the point. Drew Holiday can't get to the spots that he wants to go through. Drew has to become a knockdown shooter in order for him to have a really effective game or have a really effective series, which isn't necessarily Drew Holiday's strong suit. And that's what Boston's forcing them to do. And that was still evident in game one. I said their transition defense needed to get better. They need to be better in transition. They need to limit their turnovers because when they're getting turned over and they're allowing Milwaukee to press, get turnovers, their transition defense, I felt, was terrible. They were so focused on protecting the paint in transition against Giannis that they left Bobby Portis and Grayson Allen and Pat Connaughton and those dudes so wide open. They can't do that. They have to stay in lanes. 
They have to make sure that they're still running guys off the perimeter for extra pass. You can't just allow turnovers to lead to easy kickouts for wide open threes. You can't do that. And they corrected that mistake in game two. In game two, they limit their turnovers. They had less turnovers in game one. And they played really well in transition. They did not give up those easy buckets that they're giving up in game one. And as long as they do that, again, the half-court defense. And like people were still like, oh, you know, the Celtics offense is still struggling and we just don't know how much we believe in them because even in the second half their offense struggled a little bit yeah guys this is the Celtics and Bucks did anybody think this was going to be does anybody think this game is going to be in the 220 area combined points every game like these guys are not going to score 120 plus points on each other these are two of the very best defenses in the NBA two teams that don't necessarily they don't have this Mike D'Antoni seven seconds or less offense like they are methodical they try to get the ball into the hands of their playmakers and they take their time on offense and they play great half-court defense and they have guys that can switch all across the board everybody Giannis can guard whatever position they need to Bobby Portis can switch on to people Drew Holiday they're not scared of when he gets switched on to a big and the same thing goes for Boston they're never concerned when Marcus Marcus switched on to somebody they don't get too concerned if Al Horford has to switch on to a guard or Grant Williams has to switch on to a guard they don't worry about any of these things they can just play locked in defense in the half court scenario they are very very tough to deal with both teams both teams become extremely tough to deal with so that's where these guys are at. Uh, it's going to be a great series, like I said, Boston in six. And, you know, if you're wondering about Boston struggling on offense, let me let you know a little secret. They're going to struggle on offense. So is Milwaukee. So is Milwaukee. I think both teams are averaging like 90 points a game. They both scored like 80-something in game one. You know, the Celtics scored like 80-something in game one, 107 or whatever it was game two. Milwaukee scored 100-something in game one, but then 80-something in game two. So they're both averaging somewhere around the 90s. That's where this series is going to be. If you're expecting either team to score 115, 120, 125 like the Suns did, these teams don't allow that to happen. They're defensive-minded teams that do have guys that are capable of scoring offensively. So this series is not going to look like that. It's going to be a dogfight. It's going to be whoever those others are, Grant Williams and, you know, like I said, for the guys from Milwaukee, whoever chips in as much, whoever chips in the most, uh, those are going to be the, that's going to be the team who's going to win it. And I think Boston's just going to do enough to continue to make it hard. And I think the, like I said, last episode, I think the missing piece is Chris Middleton. If Chris Middleton's there, that adds another focal point for the Celtics defense to have to worry about somebody else that they really have to run off the three-point line, take away certain spots from him in the mid-range that he likes to get to. And when you add that factor to it, then maybe I would have picked the Bucks. But without him, I just think they're going to miss that guy that can just get a bucket or get tough buckets. So there's been getting a bucket and getting tough buckets where Chris Middleton has the ability to get tough buckets consistently that I just don't see a guy like Connaughton or Grayson Allen or these guys being able to do. They really have to get things set up for them. Uh, yeah, they have the ability, like Grayson Allen can take guys off the off the dribble, get to the rim, stuff like that. But Chris Middleton has the ability to where, like, your defense is great. Great defense for the entire possession. And he puts up a shot that should be low percentage. He has no shot of making, and he still hits those difficult buckets. Like, those are the things that are real backbreakers for teams. And with that missing piece out, I just can't see the Bucks winning this series. I think they're making it interesting. I want to say I can't say. I want to say, like, I'd be so shocked if the Bucks won the series. But I think that they need that ingredient. That's, like, the one piece that they need in order for me to pick them to win the series. So, Boston in six. Um, other interesting thing that happened, uh, Dana White. <laughs> Dana White. Dana White in the UFC. They had 
something leaked uh, the other day. Yesterday, something leaked, and it was a board basically of like, I guess a scheduling board and how they were going to, you know, who was going to play, who was going to uh, fight who, what dates and all that stuff. It was like the boards that they have. And it's usually, if you ever watch the, um, if you don't know, now you know where he has a board. It's the card, basically. It's the entire card. And he shows you whatever, whatever. Well, they had that, but in other spots, like underneath him. And I don't know if they didn't mean to do this shoot there, if they didn't mean to do it. But people, you know Twitter, they were quick to screenshot it and look at all these fights that they had coming up. Let me pull it up right now. Uh, so I can tell you exactly the fights, but a couple ones that I remember that were really circulating that get a lot of people interested was Hamza Chemaev was on there for Nate Diaz of all people. We thought that Hamza, all the fight here, look, first one, I just, Dana White, uh, all the fights that were leaked today during Dana White attending the Pivot podcast. So it was on a podcast that he was on. He didn't realize that he had that stuff behind him and it was stuff that was screenshot <clears throat> Adesanya Cannoneer July 2nd so July 2nd's card was leaked and these are the f main fights to look at Adesanya versus Cannoneer Hamza Chamaya versus Nate Diaz of all people we thought Hamza it was two guys <coughs> two guys he's gonna face he's either gonna fight uh Colby Covington maybe he fights Leon Edwards, maybe, maybe he could get Bilal Muhammad, but like we're thinking those guys, like the guys where you go, this is the last one before a championship fight. Instead, he draws Nate Diaz. I don't know. I don't know how this happens. They didn't want to fight him before. I guess Nate wants to fight him now. <coughs> I, I just, I don't know. May, in my opinion, maybe Nate feels that Hamzat can't knock him out. I'm thinking this, this in perspective of Nate Diaz. Maybe Nate Diaz feels like Hamza can't knock me out. If he couldn't put out Gilbert Burns, he can't put me out. I'm not too worried about his wrestling because of my jujitsu. He just feels like his jujitsu, the stuff he could do off his back, maybe he just feels like it's at that level that Hamza's not ready for to deal with. Especially as Hamza, remember the last fight with Gilbert Burns, he just got his purple belt. Nate has been a black belt. Nate is a black belt in jujitsu. Maybe he just feels... Like, that's not a threat there. And maybe with Hamza and his aggressiveness and stuff, Nate Phil, and this could be a five-round fight. I don't know. We don't know if that's a five-round fight or not. It's supposed to be the second fight on that card with Adesanya and Cannoneer, the, the co-main event. If it's a five-round fight, Nate might feel like, if this guy comes out that aggressive, all I have to do is weather the storm, which we know Nate always does, and I could take him in the deep waters, and we'll really, really test that gas tank in round four and round five for Hamza. That could be where Nate's thinking. My other thought is, maybe Dana White the UFC is so tired of the shit-talking Nate Diaz is doing and the threatening of, hey, release me. You're not giving me no action. So they're like, all right, you want to fight? You want some action? Here's Hamza Chemaev. Here's a fucking monster who just had a war with Gilbert Burns and came out on top of that fight. Here's this dude, and here you are off of a few losses where people are going to... Listen, Hamza's going to open as a heavy favorite. He's going to open as a heavy favorite. And I'll know if the UFC is really trying to stick it to Nate if they make this a three-round fight. If this is a three-round fight, then I just cannot picture a world where Nate wins. I haven't seen Nate off his back in a while I know he's still capable. I know he's still training jiu-jitsu and all that good stuff. I know he's capable. He's capable of it. But that would be the only scenario in a three-round fight where I see Nate Diaz winning is maybe he catches Hamza with something off of his back. 
uh, this is tough. That's a tough fight for Nate, man. I love Nate Diaz. You guys know I am on the Hamza train. I'm all about Hamza Chimaev. So I'm sorry, Nate. I love you. You're the OG. You're my guy. But I don't want to see this hype train get put out yet. I need Hamza to be the guy that everyone hopes he can be. I want him to be the guy that he says he is. I love that journey and riding that fucking train, man. I love doing that. And I hope Hamza was it. If this is going to happen. Now, again, these aren't official. Because these were all leaked. But I hope Hamza is able to take care of Nate Diaz and move on. The other one for July 2nd, Sean O'Malley, Pedro Munoz. That one, not as surprising. O'Malley has been calling out Pedro Munoz for a while. Keeps calling him prelim Pedro because Munoz was on the prelims on the last card where they were together. O'Malley and Munoz were on the same card. Munoz was on the prelims while O'Malley opened up the main card. That's where he started calling him prelim Pedro. But O'Malley's been calling for that fight. O'Malley's been hinting to everybody that he should have a fight in July. Uh, that was the date, that was the time that I guess he gave the UFC, he kept hinting to people like on Twitch and watching him, all his fans, he had been saying like, I have something brewing for July, he hadn't announced the name, he said that they told him some names, he told him yes to the names, he said they're trying to work out the details, but I should have a fight in July, when it got leaked, he then posted a video where he's running on a treadmill smoking a blunt, or not a blunt, but smoking weed, and uh, he's punching the pack with one hand, just doing funky shit that O'Malley does, but he's like, prelim Pedro, where yeah, let's go, uh, so that one looks like it's legit, that one looks like it's going to be taking place, I love that fight for Sean O'Malley, I think it's a fight that moves him, if that's my, dude, I'm going to be so fucking anxious, I'm going to be so nervous for that card, because Hamza and Sean O'Malley are two guys that I just like, I get so nervous. I want them to win so bad, especially O'Malley. I just like, I love Sean O'Malley, man. He's the shit. I've had some interactions with him, so it makes it a little bit cooler, you know. But I, I it's a huge fight for Sean O'Malley. It's another step up in competition. Not to say that uh, Howland Paiva was some pushover. Like, Howland Paiva was a legit duty beat. Uh, Kyler Phillips was not easy to beat. So, but this is another step up in Pedro Munoz. And the guy's coming off of a loss, but a guy who's still very dangerous. He, still, he was still in the top 10 for a very long time. People were really, really high on Pedro. So this is another jump up in competition against Pedro. And if Sean O'Malley can go out there and knock him out, put his lights out, have some crazy finish again, or just be dominant, win in a really good fashion, here we go. This is a here we go fight for Sean O'Malley. Because after Pedro, you, you can't, you're not going backwards. After Pedro, we ain't going backwards. This is a here we go fight. We win this one. It's killers now. We get the let's go. Now we're making our title run after this Pedro fight. So really excited for Sean. I'm going to be super nervous. Really nervous for Hamza. The Hamza one sucks, man, because Nate's my, like, I love Nate Diaz. I'm such a big fan of Nate. But I, I just, I don't want Hamza to lose, man. I want to see him become a champion, and I want all that hype. All I just want to see it explode. I hate when people have all this hype, and then they end up losing. Speaking of hypes, uh, Patty Pimblett against Azatar. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Otman Azatar, I think is how you pronounce it. He's a fucking killer. Just because I can't pronounce his name, I'm just stupid. I don't know how to pronounce his name. That does not mean that he's not an animal. That dude's a real... So everyone's saying Patty Pimblett's getting this Sean O'Malley treatment, and he's getting all these easy fights, and he's getting cans. All right. He's not a fucking can. He's a real problem, and I don't even know if, uh, if Patty the Batty is going to open up as a favorite in that fight. He might open up as the underdog. So all that talk, all that noise about UFC doing him all these favors, no, sir, that is not a favor. That's a tough dude to deal with. And if that fight takes place, that's scheduled for July 23rd, it said on there. That's the same. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not the same card. 
that would be a fight night. Maybe they headline that. I don't know where that's going to take place. We'll see. Robbie Lawler, uh, Barbarena's on that, on that same thing. Uh, Santos and Hill, Jamal Hill's on on the same thing uh, that it was leaked. And then John Jones and Stipe Miocic for July 30th. We heard all these rumors. We heard that that's what they were looking for, and it seems like that's going to be it. And it feels like that's going to be for an interim title fight, especially because I don't think that Francis Ngannou is going to be ready to go anytime shortly after that. So if I'm not mistaken, that might be an interim title fight for the heavyweight championship. John Jones, Stipe Miocic. That's going to be a banger, baby. So we got all this stuff, and all of it takes place in July. Every single one of these are from July 2nd to July 30th, from the beginning to the end of the month. I can't freaking wait. I'm going to go absolutely nuts. Oh, man, I'll be watching the Sean O'Malley. I'll be watching UFC 276. And then the very next day, heading over to El Paso, me and my son are traveling back to my hometown for his birthday. So that's freaking dope. I hope that's the case. Um, I hope these are all real. No, I don't. I don't hope the. I, I don't wish that the Nate Diaz one is real. I hope that one was a little ahead of time. Hopefully, Nate's like, nah, you leaked it. Fuck y'all. You know how Nate Diaz is. I ain't doing it no more. I hope that's what happens, man, because I really don't want to see him and Hamzat. But if they do fight, I got to go for my boy. I got to pull for Hamzat Chemaev. Stay on that hype train. And. Yeah, man, just a big goof up by Dana White. I'm seeing if I can find, this is hilarious, Dana White putting ADAs and Hamza Chamayev on the board to purposely leak it and pressure Nate into taking the fight. <laughs> Mac Malley is a funny dude to follow on Twitter. But I wonder, I'm trying to find the actual picture of it. Uh, I know Dana was pissed. <laughs> and I know you guys are wondering, like, okay, here it is. Here's a picture. Taking it in his war room. Yeah, that's what's called the war room. Hamza Chimaev will face Nate Diaz. And you see behind him here, there is that picture. Uh, this is the picture that he put up. That's the screenshot that people took when he was on the thing. I don't know how you don't realize that that's behind you. Like, I just don't understand how you realize that. Or how you don't realize that that's behind your back. Like, just a goof on Dana's part. Just complete fumble of it. Because I know these weren't announced yet. Uh, but here it is right here. Sean Strickland, Alex Pereira. Lauren Murphy, Misha Tate, all that stuff on there. And then this was another one where Gustafson fighting somebody. Oh, I think you could probably tell. Because that's the same one where uh, Patty Pimblett is. So that would be Gustafson right below Patty Pimblett, right? Krylov. Yeah. So that's probably the hopes. That's probably the plan. But yeah, big goof on Dana's part. But. It stirred up the internet. It was wild. Everybody, everybody uh, <laughs> went crazy with it, man. Everybody was leaking that out. I know you're wondering, hey, UFC pay-per-view this weekend. I will talk about that on Friday. Wait till Friday for me to get everything in. Let's wait till these weight cuts and everything get made before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, making sure that none of these fights get canceled. Hopefully, they're all good to go. But that's why I'll wait till Friday to give my predictions. We'll do a nice little deep dive. I'll also talk about what's going on in the NFL, uh, some of the things that I have seen take place, some of the things I want to talk about post-draft night. I know it's you know draft happened a little while ago, usually um, immediately after, but I'm going to stay with it a little bit because there's also some big free agent acquisitions and movement and stuff going around the league. We'll talk about that if there's time on Friday after I cover the UFC pay-per-view coming up between Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje. And there's also some really, really, really interesting fights on that card as well. So that'll happen on Friday. A little bit of a shorter pod today. I'm at like 45 minutes, something like that. 
Uh, so a little bit shorter, man. I just wanted to talk about the NBA a little bit and then obviously go into Dana White's goof. Uh, gave us some good entertainment. But I will be back on Friday to talk about UFC, the pay-per-view fight. Uh, you guys mean the world to me. Thank you, as always. If you saw this, uh, be a friend, tell a friend, share it with whoever you can. And let's just keep trying to get this thing going, man. So thank you guys, as always. See you on Friday. Peace.